Tonight, we're going to be reading Luke chapter 2, and I've had you in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, but today, for this Christmas service, this Christmas Eve morning, I want to go to another Christmas passage that a lot of people don't look at like Christmas passage, but it's probably the strongest one. It's in John chapter 1, and I want you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to drop down to 14. And I read in Jesus' name. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Dropping down to verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father, one and only Son. I also want to hit verse 14 in the ESV because I think it's a little bit stronger. It says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Heavenly Father, let these be your words to your children on this Christmas with a capital C day. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Okay, it's Christmas, so it's going to be a fun day on one hand. On the other hand, it's going to be very truthy, okay? We just want, I want to look at things through a different lens. When you come to the Christmas Eve service, we're going to do a lot of singing tonight. My message tonight is six, seven minutes. It's just a short devotional. But every Christmas time, we get so full of the stories. We hear them so many times that they kind of become white noise. And I just wanted to take a minute and talk about how Christmas, is it not really the word becoming flesh? and dwelling among us. That's what it is. So does that make you go, wow, sometimes? What makes Christmas the most wonderful time of the year that Christians celebrate as we think of God sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, the wow is not just that He dwelt among us, but that He actually came to die for our sins. It's a time for, you know, Christmas is always a time for family gatherings. The food's usually off the chain. It's time for trees, tinsel, lights, and Christmas tunes. It's a time for giving and receiving. It's a time when we all stop and reflect on the reason why we have the season in the first place. And it's a time for appreciating the people in our lives who are the most precious to us. For others, however, Christmas is also a time of loneliness and sorrow as they deal with the heartbreak of what life has dealt them. For others, Christmas is painful because they lack the resources to give the people they love the things that they want them to have. For many, it's a time of overindulgence in that amazing food, overspending on gifts, overcoming the problems associated with the season, and attempting to overcompensate for the failures of the past year. Now, in a nutshell, I think I just covered most of us from one end of the spectrum to the other. But for the church, not the visible church, but the authentic church of Jesus Christ, the one that he's going to stand up against the gates of hell, and hell will not overcome it, for that church, 
make no mistake, Christmas is a time of celebration. It doesn't matter if Jesus was born in the spring or the summer or the winter or the fall. Who cares? What matters is that God loved the world so much that he sent his precious son into a world of sinners to be saved from their sins, from the wrath of God and from the fires of hell. Do you ever think about that when you see the nativity scene set up? In whatever form, whether it's live or figurines or this picture on the wall? The nativity scene, as simple as it is, reminds us of a profound truth. It reminds us that at Christmas, we celebrate the moment God became a human and walked among men. And we celebrate the love and grace of God who willingly laid aside his heavenly glory to be born in the humblest of circumstances so that lost people like you and me could be saved. Everything we place in the nativity, every single person represented in the nativity, glorifies the Savior. When we see the nativity, I hope it touches something deep within you. I hope it stands out as a constant reminder to you of God's love, that he came into this world to die for us and that he paid an unthinkable price and provided a glorious salvation for all who receive him. And that's kind of what's wrong with the nativity. There's nothing wrong with how it looks or with the way the costumes are or the message we proclaim when we are staging our nativities, or the fact that the camel is the same size as the donkey. None of that matters. <laughs> there is something wrong, though. Think about it. Everyone we show in the nativity is someone portrayed as a worshiper in the Lord Jesus Christ. The angels worshiped him. The shepherds worshiped him. The wise men worshiped him. And the animals, in their own way, worshipped him. So we see the people involved in the nativity scene, and that's about as far as our minds go. We come away with the impression that Jesus died for people who loved and worshipped him. He came into the world to give his life for the good people among us. And that's a long way from the whole story, isn't it? There are a lot of people involved in the Christmas story who do not show up in the nativity scene. They are forgotten pieces of the Christmas story, and I'm going to show up a few of them to you today. We need to remember that Christmas throughout all the year is that Jesus Christ did not come to this world to die for people who loved him because no one loves him naturally. He came to give his life for those who hated him and wanted him dead. Mark 2.17 tells it pretty plainly. When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. What I'd like to do with the message today is look at the nativity from a different angle. I want to mess it up a little bit. And I want to put some people into the nativity scene that you would never think to put there. I want to talk about who's left out of the nativity. And while we leave some of these people out year after year, God did not leave them out of his love and his grace and his purpose for coming to this earth. Let's start with point number one. We leave out the ignorant. We leave out the ignorant. The first person missing that we will consider is Caesar Augustus. It tells us in Luke 2 that Caesar Augustus ordered a taxing of his kingdom or a census of his kingdom. Now, who's this guy? Well, Julius Caesar was the Caesar. His nephew was Caesar Augustus. He chose the name Augustus as a tribute to his own greatness. 
Our month August is named after him. Augustus ordered his people into taking the census. He wanted to know how many people were in his kingdom. Now, Caesar Augustus saw himself as a god. Every Roman citizen was required to take a pinch of incense and worship him on the altar, throw that on the flame, at least once per year. That was a requirement. What Augustus did not know, what he was ignorant of, was that the true one and only living God was using this egotistical, ignorant Roman to accomplish his sovereign will. What Augustus did not know, that God was using him, the ruler of the most powerful empire in the world, to accomplish God's sovereign will and fulfill an ancient prophecy, which we're going to look at in just a minute. Now, we have no way of knowing the human reasons for why Augustus timed his census as he did, but we do know, however, that God was behind the timing. Let's look at Galatians 4, 4 and 5. It says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us, who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Back in the Garden of Eden, God promised Adam and Eve that he would send a savior to the world. That's in Genesis 3.15. God worked throughout the course of human history until the perfect time came for him to send his son, the Lord Jesus. God sent Jesus exactly when the human conditions lined up perfectly. Think about what was going on on the planet at the time that Jesus came to the earth. I mean, what conditions were set up so that the good news could travel? Well, first of all, you had the Roman law. This protected Paul and others as they traveled the Roman world and preached the gospel. Next, you had Roman peace. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but the lack of wars in the Roman Empire allowed apostles and other early believers to travel freely and without fear. Then you had Roman roads. The excellent Roman roads, some are still in use today, afforded early Christians with easy means to travel from town to town. And then this is a big one for pastors all over the world, the Greek language. The language of Greece, which was the most common language in the world at the time, was the perfect language for the spread of the gospel. Greek was an expressive language that allowed deep truth to be explained in great detail. So... When ignorant Augustus issued his decree, he did not know that he was also being used by God to fulfill an ancient prophecy. You want to see it? It's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And it says this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days of Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. See, because of this decree, the families of Joseph and Mary were from Bethlehem. The command was to be counted, so they had to travel then from Nazareth. Jesus wasn't going to be born in Nazareth. The prophecy said he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So Augustus was ignorant of his involvement with the sovereign plan of God. Yet he is just as much a part of the Christmas story as the angels and the shepherds. Jesus came to this world to save people just like Augustus. He came to save those who are ignorant of God and just living for themselves. He came to save the dead, the deceived, the depraved, and the doomed. That's a paraphrase of Ephesians chapter 2. He came to save those who move through this life without a thought for God or his will. 
He came to save lost sinners from their sins and from themselves. The ignorant, the people like Caesar Augustus, are the whosoevers that Jesus came to save. So if we leave out the ignorant, point number two, we also leave out the doubters and the unconvinced. In Luke 2, 15 through 18, we introduce another group of people who are left out of the nativity scene every year. Think about these folks. Now, the shepherds, they heard the message, right? And they went as fast as they could to Bethlehem to see the baby Jesus. When they saw him, they believed the message of the angel and they worshiped Jesus and then they returned to their sheep. What does it say in verse 18 of Luke chapter two? It says the shepherds on their way back into the hill country couldn't keep their mouths shut. They were just yakety yak, yak, yak. They told everybody they met that the baby in the manger was told to them by an angel was in fact the Messiah. Everyone who heard the story according to the scriptures wondered at it. The word means to be impressed or to marvel. It carries the idea of being astonished by the news the shepherds told them. It it like left their mouth hanging open. They were amazed that a group of dirty, vile shepherds are moving through the streets of Bethlehem praising God and preaching about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. He's come as a baby. He's just over there in the manger. The kind of things they probably said just over and over as they traveled. Now, they were impressed by the story, but they never went to see if it was true. How sad. The Savior of the world was so very close by, and they failed to go see him for themselves. This again describes people in our world. We preach the gospel. We tell the world that Jesus loves them. So they hear the message. They see the changed lives of those who come to the Lord, but they never investigate it for themselves. They miss opportunity after opportunity to meet Jesus for themselves. Maybe they're too busy. Maybe they're too preoccupied with this life. Maybe they are afraid of what it's actually going to cost. Whatever their reasons, they miss out on the best thing the Lord ever did for them. They miss out on meeting the only person who can save their souls. This Christmas, remember, Jesus came for people like that. He came for people who are too busy, too caught up in their own lives to come to him. He died to save people just like that. Every time you hear the good news proclaimed, God is knocking on hearts. Every time a Christian invites you to be saved, God is prodding you. Every time you feel him drawing you to come to him, he is pursuing you. Don't take these heavenly invitations lightly. The news that God loves you may impress you, but it won't save you unless you turn to him in faith. The gospel message of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ might cause you to marvel might cause you to have your mouth just hanging open in astonishment at his love for us sinners. But it won't save you until you believe. That is why the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 6, it says, seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. And I might add for this Christmas season, celebrate the Lord Jesus while we still have freedom to do so. Point number three today We also, in the nativity, leave out the self-righteous. By using the label self-righteous, I'm referring to the religious leaders in that day who were blind to who Jesus was. They were so blind to the truth that they failed to recognize it when they saw it with their own eyes. Take, for instance, the chief priests and scribes summoned by Herod in Matthew chapter 2. When the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, 
following a star they said was leading them to where they would find the king of the Jews. What did Herod do? It says it right in your Bible. Herod called the religious leaders together and asked them to tell him where the Christ should be born. They quoted Micah 5 too. They said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. These men are amazing. They have right in their hands and in their minds the word of God and they have in front of them a group of men from a faraway land who have traveled hundreds of miles following a star they say is leading them to the birthplace of the Jewish Messiah. A star, by the way, which was also part of Jewish prophecy in Numbers 24. Yet these men are so preoccupied with their self-righteous religion that they fail to travel the five to seven miles to Bethlehem from Jerusalem to see if this is where if this is the Messiah or not. Why? I think it's because they're satisfied in their religion and in where they believe they stand with God. In their minds, they have reached the pinnacle of spiritual success, and they need nothing more. It seems to me they are saying, if this is the Messiah, let him come to us. Years later, he did. And when he did, they refused to believe him then as well. Some might say haughty-taughty. These self-righteous Jewish leaders are just as much a part of the Christmas story as the shepherds, the angels, and the wise men when you stop and think about it. They remind us of so many in our world. Titus, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 5, it's not on the screen. Uh, form a godliness, but they lack the power thereof. They remind us of many who come and hang out at churches, quote our prayers, they walk through baptism waters even, yet without a life-changing, sin-killing, eternity-altering relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die for people just like that. He came to earth to live and die for the self-righteous religious person who thinks they are good enough on their own. He came to live and die to deliver the deceived from their deception to set them free from their spiritual darkness and bondage. And when you get to be a part of this and see God do that, ain't nothing better. Ain't nothing better. Celebrate that this Christmas as well. See, there are so many who have convinced themselves that they are right with God while they are still lost in their sin. America has just drowned people with, your truth doesn't have to be my truth which is why we have the Bible and we say the Bible is our final authority because it's so easy to get sidetracked. Jesus died to save the self-righteous people from their self-deception. Titus 3.5 says this, he saved us not because of our righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. Salvation does not come by doing good. We do good out of good old-fashioned gratitude because we know where we once were. It comes first by really realizing there is no good in us. Then it comes by realizing that Jesus, in his death on the cross, did whatever and what, what we could never do. He did, he did whatever was necessary, including whatever God told him, which was being obedient, suffering the shame. Don't forget that part. All the way to the cross. He opened a way to God for those of us who believe in him. And when we believe, we are saved. And I say this to you before, and I can't ever say it any better than this. As big a losers as we are, 
as big a sinners as we are, because of this, God will hold you up in front of a holy God who cannot be near sin and present you as if you're absolutely perfect. So I invite you to lay aside your self-righteousness. You are not good enough to get to heaven on your own. You need Jesus. Come to him and be saved. That's the bottom line message of Christmas. So if we leave out the ignorant, we leave out the doubters and unconvinced, we leave out the self-righteous last point of the day, we also leave out the wicked. Another person who never is spotted in the nativity scene, and yet I think could be there, is King Herod. Alongside Herod in the nativity should be the soldiers who marched into Bethlehem and executed those precious innocent children. See, King Herod, also known as Herod the Great, was an incredibly wicked man. This dude was wicked. He was half Jewish and half Edomite, and as a half Jew and half Gentile, the Jews didn't have really any use for him. He served as king, but he was under the control of the Roman emperor. And so in an effort to win favor with the Jews and maintain peace in his kingdom, he would spend 46 years and an enormous sum of money turning the Jewish temple into a place of beauty and splendor. King Herod was also a very cruel man. He had his wives and sons put to death because he felt they might be creeping up on his power. What a loser. When it became clear that he would die, he ordered that 70 of the top Jewish religious respected leaders would be executed the day he died. Why? Because he would want weeping in his country when he died. All of those things took place, and they're all historically found if you just look. This was a cruel, self-centered murderer that the wise men approached to find the person they called the king of the Jews. Herod made a show of finding the answers they were after in Matthew chapter 2. He sends the wise men to Bethlehem to find this child they claim is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. He tells them to bring him word again so that he can then go and worship him. Herod's true intentions are revealed when the wise men fail to show up. So in a murderous rage, he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem with instructions to kill every child under the age of two. By the way, the nativity could include the soldiers as well, right? So what we got here is a man so jealous of his position and power that he's willing to murder innocent children just to maintain his grip on it. What a tragedy. Yet our world is filled with self-centered, cruel people too. They need to know Jesus died to save them. It's hard to get our minds around sometimes. But Jesus came into this world to live and die so that the wicked could be delivered from their evil. Jesus died for people like King Herod and the soldiers that carried out his orders. He died for abortionists. He died for murderers. He died for drunks, drug addicts, sexual deviants, and thieves. He died for ruthless people who do, not, who do everything in their power to hold on to the things that they possess. He died for people who will... Step on anyone to get what they want. And when you see it in the Christian industry, when they claim Christ while they're doing this, there's very little that's sadder than that. He died for those who don't care about the feelings or needs of others. He died for the mean, hateful people we rub shoulders with every day. He died for the wicked, sinful people who do as they please with no thoughts for anyone else. 
He died for those who can think of nobody but themselves. He died for politicians, bankers, and stockbrokers. He died for teachers, homemakers, and truck drivers. Jesus Christ died for sinners, and that includes every person who ever lived or will ever live. That means Jesus died for you. Romans 5, 6, and 9 says this. It's our last scripture of the day. It says, when we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, which we celebrated with communion, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. That's another Christmas message, yes? See, our world is filled with people, therefore it is filled with wicked people. Jesus entered this world to die for the wicked. He came to die for us. If we had been there that night he was born, the truth is, maybe we would have ignored him just like the others did. Maybe we would have turned a deaf ears to the rejoicing of the shepherds. We would have been impressed, maybe even amazed, I don't know. But would we have gone to worship him, asking for a friend? Why would we not go? Because we're sinners. Because by nature we are lost in the dark and love of our darkness rather than life. This message doesn't grow churches. But when they find Jesus, it grows the kingdom. See, I'm glad to tell you that Jesus died for people just like us. He died to deliver us from darkness. He died to deliver us from our sins. If I could go back to the manger knowing what I know today, I would fall down by that baby and I'd worship him as God. But that's only because I know what I know today. I know who he is. Turn the clock back 40 years, you'd have met me then, you'd have met a lost sinner with no interest in God. That young man would have probably went to the manger and just walked away without a thought of worshiping the child, probably cracked a few burns and some bad jokes. That's why I'm glad that Jesus came to this world for more than a handful of shepherds and wise men. I'm glad he came for people like me. And when I look around, I'm glad he came for people like you. When I first got here, I used to start the, the Sunday morning service saying, hey, good morning, sinners. And some of y'all didn't understand it. Maybe now you do. I know we're saints. And I know that when you come into this building, you want to be encouraged. Well, I hope that this message today is a, a massive encouragement for Christmas because of what we are actually celebrating. He came for people who wanted nothing to do with him. He came for us. He died for us. And he will save us if we will come to him. There is no greater thing. My friends say, Chris, is that all you do is think about this all the time, every day? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I found a job where I can actually do that and, and make a vocation out of it. It's that cool to me. Some of you are going to be called in that area. Some of you will never be called in that area, but as you go about your workaday life, whatever God's called you to do, you have that joy in your heart, and he's right there all the time. 
And your inputs affect your outputs. And so your inputs are constantly going to be about kingdom things. See, he will save us if we will come to him. And many of you have come to him and you are saved. And what happens is, is there's a little spot right in here where it's like, how can others be saved too? And when your enemies persecute you, when you realize you're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against the spirits of the air, you want them to taste what you've tasted. Because you know they won't be enemies anymore. Once they're reconciled to Jesus, they can be reconciled to you. So then how do you deal with two people who claim Jesus that are fighting? Oh, that's a whole other message for another day. Bottom line is, if you need to be saved today, if you see yourself in that crowd that's always left out of the nativity scene, if so, come to Jesus and get the greatest Christmas present you will ever have. Come today. He does love you. He died to save you, and he will save you if you will come to him. If you say, Chris, I don't know how to say that prayer, I'll introduce him to you. But basically, you go to Jesus and you say, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness, Jesus, and I believe you're the only one who can help me. In the Bible, over and over and over, people come to Jesus for healing, and he says, your faith made you well. You have to have the faith. You have to believe that this is the child that was born in the manger, perfect, from a virgin. Well, I don't know if I want to believe all that dogma and theology. I don't care. This is what the Bible says. This is the Savior of the world. This is the truth. Do your best to ask Jesus to reveal it to you then, because he died to save you if you will come to him. Why not thank him if you know him this Christmas season? You know him this Christmas season, just sing praises with us tonight and all throughout the day and all day tomorrow as you celebrate Christmas. Your salvation that he has given you as a free gift should be the biggest Christmas present that you are thrilled to have each and every day, each and every Christmas. And then we finally totally get our minds around what Christmas is all about. So take that. And then you go and have the merriest Christmas this year. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you and praise you. We thank you for living that perfect life, for condescending to come to earth to be our Savior. To live that perfect life we couldn't live, to die in our place, to take our punishment on yourself, and then to rise from the grave to give us victory over death and hell. That is celebrated every day, but on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I want to celebrate it even more. Be with your children now on this holiday. We love you, Jesus. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of my husband, Chris Danielson. BibleIdiots.com is still the website for this show, but we have grown. The new parent ministry is found at freshroadmedia.com. We would love to have you join us on our sister broadcast, a talk show that walks out Christian living and Bible apologetics entitled No Apology with Emily and Chris, a weekly download from freshroadmedia.com. Both broadcasts are listener supported and we would love to have you join us as the Lord leads. I'm Emily Danielson, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And may you see the blessings of the Lord as you go and serve your King.